Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're back talking about a Gene Wolfe short story selected by our Patreon supporters, The Toy Theater, which was originally published in Orbit 9 in 1971. And was reprinted in the story collection The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. Glenn, I I really enjoyed this story. This is a bit of a fan favorite, and I really see why. This is one of the first stories where you see the maturity of Wolf's craft in terms of prose. I think there are some elements that fans really like here. There's a puzzle in this story that I think gets a lot of people. And uh, for me, I just enjoyed a lot of the character work and the planet that the story takes place on. I don't know that it's, I would call it like one of Wolf's masterpieces, but definitely it's a story that I enjoyed. Yeah, it's a cute little story, I think. There's something about it of the uh, the cozy mystery story, I think, that Wolf actually is, is so good at building setting and landscape and dealing with a tight cast of characters that's uh, really quite charming. Yeah, there are parts of it that thematically, or at least in terms of the mystery, remind me of the Packer House method, which we've covered already. But before we get ahead of ourselves here, we should recap the story. So Glenn, why don't we get started with that? Our narrator occupies a two-by-four plastic closet on his trip to the planet Sarg. Wolf's introduction of this planet is, I think, absolutely masterful, and I just want to read his first four sentences about it, because there's no way I could do them justice. Landing on Sarg was like stepping into a new world. You expect a different kind of sunlight and a fresh smell to the air, and usually you don't get them. Sarg had them. The light ran to sienna and umber and ochre so that everything looked older than it was and made you think of waxed oak and tarnished gold. Sarg is a planet that bars industrialization, and it was a lifeless world before humans arrived, and so it's been terraformed into something of an idyllic version of an earth wilderness, complete with Colorado spruce and half-wild roses. Right. This is a really beautiful planet. That couple of sentences that you read, the waxed oak and tarnished gold, call to mind a kind of well-made marionette puppet, which is fantastic because that is really what this story is about, a kind of updated version of the practice of puppeteering. I should mention that Sarg, the planet, is named after the puppeteer Antonio Sarg, who was kind of a late 19th century, early 20th century American master of puppeteering. And this is interesting, as later on we'll meet a character called Antonio that I think is part of what makes the puzzle of this story interesting for a lot of readers. You started your reread of these sentences after the joke that sets up this uh, this bit about Sarg. And, and I like this joke that Wolf puts into the first paragraph because it introduces us immediately to the good humor, nature, and tone of our narrator. Right before... Glenn, as you read, he says, landing on Sarg was like stepping into a new world. He gets a pamphlet from one of the hostesses on the airplane, and the pamphlet said, landing on Sarg would be like stepping into a new world, and he throws it away, and then the next sentence is that. So there's just a lot of fun here that Wolf is having with the story and the narrator that I think anybody could easily appreciate if this were their first Wolf story. Yeah, there's a lot of play with 
expectations and appearances that gets set up here in these opening paragraphs. That pamphlet is a good one about expectations. And then this everything looking older than it actually is. Things not appearing quite exactly as they are is inherent in this planet. We're also told that this planet is covered in these beautiful roses. They're all breeds of pink roses, the Saravan Fleet Rose and the Amelie Gravero Rose. And this is Wolf's early use of flowers as women's names, as we'll see a little bit later on in the story. That, again, he advances in his later work. I do want to say a brief word about what pink roses mean. The lighter pink roses, which are the Saravan Fleet Roses, tend to mean something like gentleness and admiration. Or the darker pink roses, or kind of medium red, as I think you might describe the Amelie Gravero roses, represent gratitude and appreciation. So here I think Wolf is representing the character's mindset at being able to come to this planet in some way. And I think that the senses of these flowers are represented throughout the narrator's admiration of Stromboli, who we'll meet in just a moment. As you say, Brandon, this is a story about marionettes and marionettists, puppeteers, Our narrator is a professional marionettist, and he has come to Sark to see this man, Stromboli, who is a reclusive master marionettist. Stromboli has sent a buggy and a driver to fetch our narrator from the spaceport, a beautiful juxtaposition there. And on the way to Stromboli's house, the driver, a man named Antonio, asks for a demonstration of the narrator's marionetting. The marionette is named Charity. She is a head taller than our narrator, Blonde, long-legged, and narrow-waisted. A subtle exaggeration of a really pretty showgirl. The narrator manipulates the tiny dials and levers of his control, and Charity climbs out of her box and joins them on the buggy's seat. She sings, she kisses Antonio, and then she skips and dances on the road in front of them for a while before returning to her box. Antonio is impressed. He says, The skipping down the road, anyone can make them to skip for a few steps, But to do so for so long, over the uneven ground, and so rapidly, I know how difficult it is. Yeah, there's quite a lot going on here and quite a lot packed into this section as it relates to the overall narrative. First, you you named the driver, which we don't get his name until much later on in the story. And for me, this is interesting insofar as it kind of represents a dichotomy in the roles between the driver early on and who we're introduced to and how he's described later on in this story, which is uh, Stromboli's man of all work. Uh, Stromboli, of course, is a reference to the Walt Disney cartoon Pinocchio. Stromboli was the evil puppet master who let Pinocchio believe he wasn't being controlled because he had no strings. And yet there was a different method of control that Stromboli was exercising over Pinocchio. I think that is going to be a part of what we'll see is happening in this story. There's also... A lot of sexual subtext here with Charity being described as a really pretty showgirl. One of the first actions she does is kiss the driver of the buggy, Antonio. And this is going to come up as well. I think it's very interesting that kind of the first thought that people have with these marionette puppets, at least the marionettists themselves, is that part of the appeal is in their sexual qualities in some sense. So that is all packed into this really small section of action in this story. Well, when they arrive at the small Italian Alpine style house, Madame Stromboli is there waiting for them, white haired, but still showing hints of the beautiful woman she had once been. Madame Stromboli and our narrator talk about the expense of traveling between the suns. 
She reminisces about the years when her husband went traveling around the galaxy to make money as a marionettist. It was lonely. Now they are together on this barely populated planet, which is also lonely, but now at least they are lonely together. Madame Stromboli is the second person, ostensible person that we meet in this story. And I just want to read the way that Wolf actually describes her change, her aging, because I think it's going to help us understand who in this story is a puppet and who is not. Wolf writes this. She was white haired now, but the woman she had once been, olive skinned and beautiful with magnificent dark eyes, still showed plainly on her face. It's just a beautiful picture of a woman who has aged gracefully. But I think when you look at the way her hair is described as having changed, this to me could undermine the the fact that she might be one of Stromboli's puppets. Right. And that, of course, is the, the puzzle that you mentioned at the top of the show that, that we'll be working on, I think, when we, when we get to our discussion here. Stromboli and our narrator get along marvelously well. Stromboli always spends his mornings alone in a room lined with mirrors where he practices his marionetting. But in the afternoons and in the evenings, he shows our narrator many of his best skills and tricks. Stromboli can operate five of the life-sized marionettes at a time, which is something that no one else can do. More impressive, our narrator, who himself is a professional, can barely tell that Stromboli is even operating them. During this demonstration, Stromboli reminisces about the first marionettes. They were small and operated by strings, and no one could handle more than four. Stromboli suggests that perhaps our narrator will be able to do six someday, a feat that would bring him great renown. But our narrator says that he would be happy just to handle three. And Stromboli believes in him and gives some advice and some compliments. If our narrator wishes to do three, he must always travel with three, not just the one he has brought with him. But at this point in his career, the narrator has exceeded Stromboli's own ability to do women's voices when he was at the narrator's age. And Stromboli goes on to explain that mastering women's voices was the hardest thing for him to do. And at this confession, he makes three of his girls, Julia, Lucinda, and Columbine, burst into Rosina's song from the opera The Barber of Seville, each at different vocal ranges. And after this dazzling demonstration, Stromboli explains how he learned to do it. You see, when he was younger, little Maria, that is, Signora Stromboli, his wife, would do the women's voices. And the only way that he learned to do it for himself was to go touring Outworld, leaving little Maria at home. And when he came home, when he'd had to do this on his own, he could perform this trick. Yeah, and the way he says that he could perform this trick is fascinating. He says, we could do this. He's putting himself in the grouping with the puppets. He's identifying with them in some way. This whole section, I think it's crucial to understand, is really about demonstration of mastery. It's about mastery of craft. And I think this is important to know because a lot of the puzzle, who's a puppet, who's not, which is the question of the puzzle, a lot of people could refer to this section for their arguments. But for me, this is really about a person who is devoted to their craft explaining mastery. You mentioned that while the narrator is watching Stromboli, he can't even tell he's operating the puppets. It's that good. He's that good. And he can operate five. And the way he tells the narrator 
that he wants the narrator to be able to get to six is by saying they'll be throwing flowers on your grave saying he could do six. And that speaks to the total devotion to the craft, the total need to devote yourself 100% to the craft to supersede the old masters. Uh, you see this a lot in like stories about magicians. Like They start when they're young and they practice for hours and hours and they, ne- they can never stop practicing because there's always somebody kind of coming up behind them. In terms of his devotion, he's also forced to become a master in all aspects of the craft, including the women's voices. Because without that, he wouldn't have become as renowned as he did off-world and throughout the galaxy. And so this section to me really speaks about Stromboli's mastery and his ease of mastery, even as he talks about his difficulty in learning the craft. We also learn one thing here, which is a bit of a Chekhov's gun. We're introduced to the idea of Stromboli's best creation, which is the comic butler, Zanny, which is a classic figure of the Italian commedia dell'arte. Yeah, one of the things that Stromboli says here about the voices is that it's really important not to record them ahead of time, that they have to be authentically coming from you. This might be some information that we'll want to draw on in our discussion. Well, the night before our narrator's departure, he and the Strombolis hold a party with wine and singing. In the morning, when he is packing to leave... Our narrator cannot find his second best pair of shoes. He decides it is no matter, and he gives his last suitcase to Antonio and says goodbye to Madame Stromboli. Signor Stromboli, of course, is engaged in his morning practice in the mirror room, and so our narrator then steps outside to await the buggy. It takes more than ten minutes for the buggy to appear, but now it is not driven by Antonio, but by a dark-haired woman in pink named Lily. Antonio is indisposed, so she'll be driving him. Along the way, she suggests that she is Stromboli's mistress, who lives in a little house not that far away. Lily muses about Stromboli's advancing years, and then about her own, and she asks our narrator if she is still beautiful. And the narrator observes the crack lore on her cheeks, and this is a masterful use of language here, that lets us know that Lily is a marionette, that her skin is painted on. And the narrator says that, of course, she is beautiful, and Lily presses him further. Does he find her attractive? She knows a place where the ground is flat, and there are flowers, and the sound of water, and they might lie together. And when our narrator declines, Lily becomes pushy. She argues against his polite objections, and she touches him, and it is only when he says that there is someone to whom he must be faithful that Lily relents. Right, and he says he's lying about the fact that there is someone who he has to be faithful to. He, he says that someone I can't betray if I'm going to live with myself. This is like a weird slip of the tongue, I think. I think that it is absolutely the case that there is somebody who he has to be faithful to, and it's himself in some way. Perhaps it's even his own relationship with his, his own creations, his own puppets. But at least he feels he can't violate something that he believes in. And rather than say that about himself... He projects that onto this imaginary person to ease Lily's mind, even though he knows that she's a puppet. She also claims that she has a lot to teach him that Stromboli couldn't, which is to me the creepiest part of this story about how Stromboli gained so much fame off-world. Because we know from the beginning that our character, our narrator, names his puppet Charity 
And his little joke is is that he calls her that because that's what he has to ask for after he's done performing. And meanwhile, Stromboli has made a great living off of this craft. And this this is what concerns me deeply about this story. Right. Well, the narrator gets to the spaceport and he has two hours to kill there. And he spends them reading magazines and staring at Sarg's mountains. And just as his flight is boarding, our narrator is accosted by Stromboli's butler, Zanny. And Zanny, as you said earlier, Brandon, is a marionette about whom our narrator has heard a great deal, but hasn't gotten to see during his stay. And now we see that he has a great shapeless nose, a swag belly, and best of all, flippers for hands. But what really matters here is that he has with him our narrator's second best shoes. But the butler also has a message. Master Stromboli has heard of his little talk with Lily, and he asks that the narrator keep it a secret. And the narrator looks around the crowded spaceport until he locates Stromboli, who is standing in a corner, his face impassive, while his fingers fly over the levers of the butler's controller. Our narrator thinks of Joruri, the Japanese puppet theater in which the operators stand in full view of the audience, but the audience pretends not to see them. The butler continues. He says, The master begs leave to remind you that he was once a young man very like yourself, sir. He expresses the hope that you know with whom you are keeping faith. He further expresses the hope that he himself does not know. At this, our narrator thinks of Lily's crackling cheeks and his own marionette, Charity's own, which he calls to mind as blooming peaches. With that thought, the narrator takes his second best pair of shoes, goes into the ship, climbs into his own little box, and our story is at an end. Yeah, we're going to be unpacking that last sentence here and the revelation that Lily herself is a marionette in just a moment. There are a few things I want to bring up here. One is, even though Zanny is clearly an absurd creature, flippers for hands, shapeless nose, you know, and Mark Aramini's sort of reading, he, he's elephantine in some way. He's There's some elephant characteristics besides his voice. Um, but still, people in the airport question whether or not Zanny is real at all. That could speak to alien life forms that exist in this universe, and that the creation of Zanny by Stromboli speaks to some great verisimilitude between Zanny and some alien species that's we don't know about in this story. It's great world building, I think. He also asks, I love this little bit, that in the Planet of Roses, Stromboli asks that what the narrator has learned here be kept under the rose, which is this great reference to sub rosa, which means in confidence that he keeps everything in confidence. Uh, still a symbol used in Catholic churches on confessionals. You see, you know, the rose uh, maybe out of a woodcut or something like that, which speaks to the confidentiality, the kind of pact of confession. And I do want to bring up this notion of Jerori as well, because Zanni says, and I think this is Stromboli speaking through Zanni that having the master in view may be the best way. And this is another thought I hope we're able to unpack. So quite a lot going on in this story. I think this story has a real moral to it that is going to inform our reading of the story. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into the discussion of this one. And I think listeners will be as well. Well, the first question I want to ask really addresses the puzzle of the story that I think is raised in the last line of the story, where the narrator says he climbs into his own little box. And here we have descriptions of the marionettes climbing in and out of their boxes, this similar thing happening throughout the story. 
and the fact that Lily is a puppet without a master, or so it seems. But I think I want to talk about the implications of where Lily's master is hiding and what's going on there as we go through this question. So let's just get this out of the way real quick. Who is a puppet? And how real is the narrator in the story? And then I think I just raised kind of where it was raised in the text for the reader. But Glenn, if you have any other places where you think this question is raised, I'd love to hear them. But first, let me just go through the characters and the question of who is the puppet. Our characters are the narrator, Stromboli, Maria Stromboli, Antonio, the man of all work, and Zanny. And these are basically our main characters. Of course, Lily is explicitly a puppet, so I I just haven't even brought her up. Yeah, this is the real puzzle that I think is so appealing to people and why this is such a fan favorite. So let's let's start with the first clue that something isn't right here, which is what we know about the narrator. And this story has a nice sort of ring composition to it in that it begins with the narrator in his box on the spaceship and ends with that. You know, in the middle, in the intervening story, we learn about the significance of boxes. And we can very easily overlook when we are reading the first few paragraphs, this detail about the size of his compartment on the spaceship, but it is two by four. That's two dimensional. We assume this box has three dimensions. That's normally how they work. So we don't necessarily know that one of those is height. But usually when people say two by four, that is what they mean. The four is the height. And we get two other references to height being significant in this story. One is when Stromboli is talking about the history of marionettes and talks about how they used to be smaller and that the biggest of them would only come up to a person's shoulder. And we also know that Charity is a head taller than our narrator. So this is someone who is short and who is able to fit into a small box. And this is precisely what we are told marionettes used to be. Right. It is a little puzzling, unless, of course, there's just a seat with a screen in some kind of screened-in room in an airplane, and this is how people travel. I mean, if he could be six feet tall and sitting, he's four feet tall, and that could be the case, and he's he's not broad-shouldered. There's a lot of possibilities here, but Wolf, by withholding that third dimension from us, is really playing games with the reader here. I do think, though, in my reading of this story, that the narrator needs to be a human in order for the story to land, because otherwise... Wolf is doing something that I find unfair, which is playing games purely with the reader without regard to the characters in his own story. I agree with that, but I want to save my final judgment about the puppetness or humanness of the of the narrator till we've maybe gone through these other characters. And, and maybe as you suggest, Brian, let's just go through them. So Stromboli is the next character that you listed. Stromboli is presented to us as being a person. He is presented to us as being the puppet master. We see him with puppet controllers, and we see that he is manipulating things. He seems also to drink wine at the very least. We don't get any direct narration of him eating food, but we at least think that he is drinking wine. Yeah, the ability for marionettes to retain fluids would be a bridge too far for me in this story. Right, right. So that struck me as well. But I want to call back to the story we did last time, Brandon, uh, Slaves of Silver, which is about robots. And I think, although we are talking about marionettes in this story, these are essentially perhaps robots of a, of a different sort. And we actually get detail in Slaves of Silver that in Wolf's mind, robots can retain fluid and will have to take washroom breaks to, to let that fluid out. It's, it's kind of an amusing detail when uh, Street is yelling at the robot who works at the TV store. So we might 
not dismiss that quite so easily as being a being a clue to someone's personness here. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we are going to go in depth into the question of Wolf's evolution of robots in just a few minutes. Yeah. So another thing I just want to say about Stromboli, and maybe I'll, this, I'll just clue this in for Madame Stromboli as well, is just to say that the marionettes, the creatures that we meet here who we both feel confident are definitely marionettes, often have silly names. And Stromboli is a pretty silly name. And it's a clear reference. So this seems like not the sort of name that a person has, but the sort of name that someone who's made a puppet gives to his or her puppet. Another really good point, you know, in kind of investigating this story and reading through it, there are readers out there who think Stromboli himself is a puppet, which I think would either mean that Maria is the puppet master or someone else is pulling the string, so to speak, behind the scenes. I do think that at least Maria cannot be a puppet because she's the only character who is explicitly described as having changed in some way, which unless the puppet master was aging his puppets with him would be an odd sort of thing to do as he seems to let Lily age in a way that is more like a painting than a person. Yeah, that's some really compelling evidence. Though I will say that we don't we don't see her age, right? This is what we have is the narrator looking at uh, an old woman who he thinks is beautiful and he envisions what she might have looked like when she was younger. That's true. I'm really speaking of the clause. She was white-haired now, not she was white-haired. It's that calling attention to the passage of time and her state today, which immediately to me calls to mind a need to compare it to something that has been. So unless there's something linguistically playful going on here, I think I'm going to take it on the surface that now she was white-haired and she wasn't always. Yeah, I think that the problem for me with your reading there, Brandon, is simply that this is a first-person narrative. So we're not getting an omniscient narrator or a detached narrator, that this is being told to us by someone in the story who doesn't have that knowledge, who is making that assumption. Yeah, that's a very fair point, though I think the Strombolis were rather famous, and a lot of people would have seen them, and a lot of people would have known them, and Stromboli himself talks about her and her youth. So for me, there's a lot of intertextual and extra-textual suggestions that Maria has grown or changed in some way. Yeah, well, I hope this this is just pointing out all the complexities of this story. Let's let's talk about who else might be a puppet or might be the puppet master. One of the other characters that we see here is Antonio, this buggy driver or man of all work. What's interesting about Antonio is that this is the first name of the famous real marionettist Sarg. And he has perhaps some real agency in the story and that he loads up the narrator's bags onto the buggy and then disappears and is replaced later by Lily. Seemingly, this is a choice that he made. He was not actually indisposed. I think we can dispense with Lily's statement there. So this might be some good evidence that this is not only a person, uh, an actual human, but that he might be the person who is the real marionettist who is controlling all of these other people that we see. For me, the most compelling argument for this is that it's Sarg's planet, and the buggy driver's name is Antonio, and this is Gene Wolfe being playful with names and references outside of the text. To me, this reads as homage more than as being a clue. I think Antonio is kind of the most direct robot slave type of character in this story. For me, if you have marionettes who can do all this stuff and carry all these things and be able to work in this way, 
and you're an aging puppeteer, why not just have one of your puppets do all the work for you? My other thought uh, regarding Antonio being a puppet is that he's the other buggy driver and that he seems to speak in Stromboli's voice a little bit. Stromboli maintaining his pride about his work when our narrator asks him if he's as good as Stromboli, which would be an innocuous question to ask a laborer for a family. And maybe that person would be honest or dishonest, but the the response, the level of pride and the level of defense, I think that can be read into Antonio's response to me hints at the fact that Stromboli is just on all these buggy rides in a really weird way. Right. Unless it's that Antonio is himself the puppet master and that he's the real Stromboli. But this is a hoax that he's been perpetrating his whole career is no one knows that Antonio is the real puppeteer, the real marionettist, and that uh, this whole 40-year interstellar career that Stromboli has as a famous puppeteer is all a hoax because Stromboli was actually a puppet the whole time. I mean, if you people want to read the narrator as a puppet as well, we get explicitly five puppets in the same room then when the three girls are singing the Barber of Seville and the narrator is in there and Stromboli as well, which this is now the full demonstration of mastery of Antonio, the man working behind the scenes. And it also speaks to maybe the question about Drury, where Stromboli is out in the open, and it is the case that people are ignoring him. But Zanny is saying, perhaps this is the best way, because Antonio never got the credit he feels he deserved. That's not my reading of the story, but it's a fun one. Yeah, I like that one. I mean, there there are numerous readings of this story, and I think I like all of them. I'm not actually sure I have much right. of a horse in this <laughs> yeah, race. Yeah, no, me neither. So I think we went through all the characters and a couple readings, and, and we discovered that they're all equally enjoyable. And the only reason I'd have a fixed reading on the story is related to the moral of the story. I need the narrator to be a person in order for this moral to stick, because otherwise it's it's kind of... When we were talking about the Packer House method, if they're all dead and stuck inside of a cuckoo clock, who is the story for? Why is it being told? So I guess, you know, in just order to wrap up, Glenn, do you think at least the narrator is a person and not a puppet? One thing I'll say before I answer that question is that I think that for the narrator to be a puppet, Charity has to be a person and that she's the real marionettist who is controlling the narrator. But I will say, I don't think that's true. I like all of these clues that the narrator might be a robot, but there is something I think that to me at least feels unwolfian in its disingenuineness if an inanimate character is telling this story. Although I made the comparison earlier between the puppets and robots, these are not robots. These are machines that are being controlled by essentially a remote control who, although they are speaking, their voice is always coming from the person who is controlling that. We get no indication that these are autonomous creatures with their own capacity for speech or any kind of thought at all. Yet this is explicitly a story that is being written down uh, and told by this narrator. So if the story is true, then the narrator cannot be a puppet. Yeah, that's my reading as well. And I think the only way you can read this story is if you take that for granted. And I don't think Wolf really plays any serious games with that, though he is very playful with language in this story. But because we've kind of come to that conclusion, and please let us know if you have a different one, because that will mean this story has different things to tell us about the world of marionettists. But if we've all agreed that that's the conclusion, the narrator at least is a human, 
What do you think the final lesson is, the moral of the story is, that the puppet master, whoever it is, wishes to teach the narrator? What is he doing by going through all this trouble with Lily? Would he have gone through with the kind of sexual escapade, the sexual episode, if the narrator had desired it? Does it mean that Stromboli or Antonio is traveling in the buggy somewhere, controlling this person? What does it say about the technology of these things? If the puppet master has to be hiding somewhere to control it, can it see through the puppet's eyes? And if that's the case, what does that say about Stromboli's exploits off-world and the sexualization of these puppets? Or is there just further automation that these puppets have? Are they closer to being robots? So to me, when you start with the moral of the story, it raises all of these questions about the technology of the puppets and the work of the puppeteer. So I just want to open up that door with you and see where we end up. I might start actually by talking about the technology and then get to the the moral. Because you're right to point to these real issues with understanding how the technology works. We have puppets that are quite far from their puppeteer, but yet they are speaking. And so I have to think that something about the controller is able to carry the voice of the puppeteer and there is some kind of electronic system, right, that has that voice coming through the mouth of the marionette is maybe my reading of that technology. But it is an interesting question, because how far does that transmit? Can the puppeteer see through the eyes of the puppet? Or does the puppeteer have to have a line of sight? You know, if we take it as a given that Lily is a puppet, where is whoever her controller is? I, this idea that, that Stromboli or Antonio is hiding under the seat in the buggy while he is attempting to have his guest have sex with his puppet is real weird and real creepy. Well, it's super weird. It's a, it's a huge problem for me in this story, because... How is this person driving a horse, a horse and buggy? Like, what by what means of control are is the inanimate object controlling the animate, controlling the horses? If that animate object requires control by a further animated being, a further ensouled creature, so like, there's definitely something that needs to happen for the, these horses aren't going automatically between the airport and the house unless that's what they do we know horses have a great sense of direction and they might be able to do this but for any if there were anything to happen in this kind of pristine faux wilderness how does she stop them if the narrator decides he wants to get off and have a quickie in the meadow you know i i don't know it's a real question for me and to me it means that the puppet master must be somewhere in the buggy which means that Antonio could have been a puppet as well. So this question of what is the moral of this story, what is this about, is real strange. Uh, It's clearly wrapped up in sex. And that seems real obvious, but maybe there is something going on here in exploring what happens when you, as a person, as an ensouled creature, make, physically make, something that resembles, very closely resembles a human, which is an intimate process, this process of creation, and then spends an inordinate amount of time with that creature, imbuing it with a different personality, and maybe even spend more time inhabiting that personality as your job than you spend inhabiting your own personality. What does that do to a person's sense of self when they're not at work? And especially if we're seeing a culture here of puppeteers on the road, that this is a road job, that they are lonely. They're isolated. The only companionship they have is with this puppet. In a weird way, to say the only companionship they have is with this other persona 
or other personas that they are pretending to be. That seems like a recipe for poor mental health to me, and that might be a little bit what this story is about. Absolutely. I mean, I think this raises the question of Stromboli's warning of never to record the women's voices and the notion of Drurori, which is always remembering that there's somebody controlling the puppet and the, the, the idea that perhaps this is the best way. I think all of these things are caught up in the moral of this story. I do want to read one brief thing that Wolf wrote as his comment on the story, because the story also shows up in the best of Gene Wolfe. And he writes about toy theaters and how G.K. Chesterton had one, and he's convinced Chesterton's was of St. George and the Dragon. And it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. But um, let, me, let me just read this really quickly. G.K. Chesterton had a toy theater, doubtless with a princess and St. George and a dragon. Back then, they were a penny plain and a tuppence colored. But if you got the plain sort, you had the pleasure of coloring everything to suit yourself. You might have a princess with fiery red hair if you liked, and a flaxen dragon. Years after my monkey had returned to the jungle, or wherever, I read about Chesterton's theater with pleasure. The, mo- uh, the monkey was uh, Wolf's own puppet that he had in his, his toy theater. By then, I already knew of certain sad toys possessed by adult men. And so he is clearly referring to kind of uh, like a sex doll or something like that here, and that this story is somehow related to his contemplation of falling in love with your own creation in some regard. And I do think that is the warning of this story, is not just marionettists in particular, but um, this is also kind of a weird sort of psychoanalytic theory as well, that sex itself is not sex with a person but with a fantasy it's kind of a later theory and that i think wolf is urging us to have real intimacy with other subjects and to not get confused about objects and subjects and not to confuse the two and also as television and movies are getting crazier and more experimental in the 70s and as we all know this theater goes all the way back to the beginning of time and has become movies and technology is advancing. I think there's a warning here, especially with the mention of Drury, to remember that somebody is pulling the strings on your desires when you engage in the entertainment. And perhaps it's better to pretend to ignore the person there than to never see them at all. I like this reading about objectivity and subjectivity, but when you were reading Wolf's reflection on this story from The Best of Gene Wolf, I was reminded of this theme of loneliness and isolation that does appear in the story. And it occurred to me that the person, the character who talks about loneliness, the only one who does is Madame Stromboli. I wonder if sad toys, the sad toys in Wolf's reflection about this story isn't something like a sex doll, but it's people's wives, that these are wives who are, have been disregarded and neglected by their husbands who are focused on, concerned about, obsessed with their work to the extent that they actually treat their wives, this their partner, right? This, this ensouled human who is supposed to be their partner in life, that they're treating that person like an object and that that's why that person is sad and that this is perhaps a cautionary tale about don't get so obsessed with your work that you forget the real the people in your life that's a great reading as well and i think like with the packer house method where we broke down the idea of the undead a little bit and how it didn't really matter if 
the woman was actually alive because she wasn't. She was undead before she died. In the same way, I think these characters are puppets without being puppets, without the, the, the point of the puppets in this story are to point us to the dangers of regarding people as objects and even regarding our own creations as objects or even ruling over our small kingdoms in such a way that all the people in them become objects. And this could speak to wives or children or any other kind of sad toy that becomes an object in your own play theater. And I think that's a big part of what Wolf is talking about, though I think also sex dolls. <laughs> well, and maybe Wolf is just pointing here to this idea that we're all puppets, perhaps as well, right? And pl- blurring these lines of subject and object here. With that in mind, or perhaps a cynical view like that in mind, that the that we should we should all be treating each other as subjects rather than objects. That is the broadest reading of this story, but I think it's exactly what Wolf has in mind as well. I th- I really do. All right. Well, what what else do you have for us? Well, I do have one other question. Uh, that's kind of the book club question. Before I have a bigger conceptual Wolf question about robots, I I wanted to know, Glenn, what you made of the pointed notion in the story that Sarg is one of the non-industrial planets. Now, I was surprised to see this because it doesn't really play into the story in any other way. But I was particularly surprised by this notion because to me, it means that the universe that this story takes place in doesn't just see places that haven't been touched by industrial forces as places yet to be exploited. Instead, they put places aside for beauty and creation, and maybe the beauty and bounty of Earth, a new place for that. So just wanted to know what you thought of that. It was a weird note in this story, but I think it's meant to be a world-building note. So I just would love to hear your thoughts. I think there are a couple things going on here with this note in the, the story. I think that one of them is that Wolf is trying to create a setting in which talking about puppets will seem germane and not out of place. And so he has to create a world that resembles early modernity rather than a, an, an actual industrialized spacefaring civilization. But another thing that I might point to here is that we've seen quite a bit in Wolf's early stories of a real emphasis on environmentalism and this sense that some places ought to be set aside as wilderness. And while we don't actually know the size right, of this spacefaring civilization in which people travel between the suns, this planet, Sarg's world, might occupy the same sort of place in that civilization that Yellowstone functions in ours, that it is an, a type of a national park, that there are several such planets that are just given over to wilderness for people to go and commune with nature, to, to hike, to climb mountains, uh, maybe to, to camp, to hunt possibly. And there might be a whole culture around that type of tourism. I think that's an excellent point. And, and you're right to bring up Wolf's concern with environmentalism and and nature. And we see that this planet has people who who live there and they tend to nature. I mean, the Strombolis themselves have a certain kind of wild garden. I also wonder at the parallels of this replication of Earth's natural beauty, at least in the US, and maybe how there could be parallels there between this sort of terraforming process and the creation of these marionettes and why this setting and these descriptions of terraforming and the natural beauty are 
in the same story as a story whose morality is about the falling in love with one's own creation. I don't know quite what to make of that, but I just, I don't know, it just occurred to me. So I wonder, Glenn, if if you have any comments on that. Yeah, well, I think that's a great observation because this easily could have just been set on a planet that had its own flora and fauna and that people hadn't industrialized it. So we're told explicitly that this is a planet that has no life until life from Earth is seeded on it. Wolf is really specific about the types of flora that are on this planet, Colorado spruce, specific breeds of roses that are half wild, half domesticated that might have some significance in the story as well. But all of that is coupled with the fact that the light is different here. And in fact, we know that our narrator has been to many other worlds and that they don't strike him as being that different from Earth. But this world, even though it has all of this explicitly Earth flora on it, feels different because of the light and also has a a fresh smell to the air. So Wolf is trying to call our attention to something here about creating beauty and the maybe the function of beauty in our lives, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think we should leave that to our listeners. This is a really strong parallel that Wolf is creating in this story, and I think it speaks to his maturity as a craftsman, as a writer as well, that I just haven't had the time this week to puzzle out. And it really just occurred to me in the conversation that, oh boy, one of the reasons why he's bringing up this thing is is it's about, this story is about creation and not falling in love with your own creation. But it is about beauty. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right, Glenn. So listeners, please let us know what you think here, because I think there's a great conversation to be had. Well, with the, the book clubby type questions out of the way, you and I are both really interested in Wolf's treatment of robots as a writer and consciousness and conscious beings and how he describes being. And given that this is the second story we've covered that makes an explicit reference to Pinocchio, and I think now we can say it's Disney's Pinocchio. Right, right. (laughs) Um, The first story was, of course, Horrors of War, where Pinocchio was a a kind of semi-conscious robot tank like thing. And Horrors of War was a story about robots, while Toy Theater is ostensibly about puppets. I think there's a real strong connection that we can be drawn here, given that information. So I want to ask you about that, Glenn. Have you given much thought this week about the connection between these advanced puppets and Wolf's robots and what he's trying to say about life? There's a lot going on here, and I'll, I'll say a couple of things. First is to clarify that Horrors of War, Chris, they're not robots per se, that they're these, they're these synthetic part biological part machine creatures. That's right, but I think Pinocchio in that story is explicitly a robot, and they identify with him as like part of their platoon that in a way that is fraternal and, and expresses camaraderie. So, so you're absolutely right. They're not robots in Horrors of War, but the Pinocchio character... Is And I guess that's the connection I was trying to make. No, no, no. And you're absolutely right. And of course, there's also Punch is another type of intelligent machine-like thing, a a robot-like thing anyway, in that story. And the other thing I just wanted to say is that we actually really overlooked, we sort of glossed over Punch and Pinocchio in that story because we really wanted to focus so much on the, the narrator's experience. But those were certainly invoked in that story as part of a, a larger motif of this question of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a person? What's the difference between a person and an artificial intelligence, essentially? 
So I think it's great that you've drawn the connection between those two stories here. And I now re- regret now that I glossed over that in that story. Yeah. And of course, we would never have known unless we had read Far Ahead or read every single one of Wolf's story before we started this project that puppetry would come back in such a big way. Punch, of course, is a famous English puppet. I think actually in a lot of ways that this story is asking more complex questions than Horrors of War was. You and I have been taken to task a little bit on our lukewarm response to right, Horrors right, of right. War. I think this is the this is the second episode in this short story interlude where we've had to had to bring that up. I think it's neat to see Wolf here in 1971 and 1972 dealing with some of these same issues that he was dealing with just a few years previously in a, a much what to me seems to be a much more sophisticated way. But to get at the real heart of your question, Brandon, of you know what do I think is going on? What is Wolf trying to say here? I'm not so sure that Wolf here in this story is making a clear point so much as he's raising a lot of questions and is trying to show us that we should think more carefully about identity and about personhood and also about objectivity and subjectivity here in how we relate to creatures. I think that this is a step back from Wolf giving us conscious robots in worlds where it's natural for people to treat robots and artificial intelligences as beings and showing us our responsibility as human beings to to one another. The only point I have to kind of hone the edge of the blade a little bit is in my reading of this story, Antonio is not the puppet master, but instead the slave of the family, the man of all work that is not conscious, but is forced to do all the labor through these controls and various, I don't know, doodads that the Strombolis work with. And I just want to know for you, if it feels different, it's less of like kind of a rational question, but if, if on a gut level, if you were to take my reading of Antonio as the slave who is forced to do all this work but has no consciousness and compare that to one of Wolf's later robots if you feel any differently about what's happening with that kind of situation, especially as we've come off of the story of Slaves of Silver, which is about subjects who are forced into a state of objectivity. We get an awful lot in this story about money, about business, about being a a marionettist as a business, as something that you are doing in order to make a living. And we also know that this planet, Sarg's world, is set aside from industrialization. So we know that this is an industrialized, spacefaring civilization, that there must be massive corporations out there. There must be people laboring in factories, in mines, or if not humans, at least, perhaps robots. But we don't get any sense of what it is that people are doing for a living other than being professional marionettists and driving the buggy for a professional marionettist. We get maybe some little sense that there might be people operating the spaceships who are coming by and dropping pamphlets in your boxes. But again, we don't know that those are people, those are humans versus robots. So it's hard to extrapolate too much from the limited view that we get here. So I'm not sure that thinking of Antonio as a as a slave versus as someone who is making a nice living as 
a buggy driver and and man of all work doing other doing perhaps other types of jobs on this planet because i can take a reading of antonio here as being someone who used to work in a factory and said i hate working in a factory you know what i want to do is live in a world of mountains and half wild roses and beauty and i would happily be someone's buggy driver and or man of all work than be a factory worker here on some other planet he's the stromboli's thoreau so to speak right right (laughs) i think that makes a lot of sense it's a great answer but then what of lily so we have the two buggy drivers and this is where i want to draw a parallel here i want to contrast these two buggy drivers and operate as though they are both stromboli's creation and if we can compare one as a laborer and one as sort of a sex object, I want to get at what's being taken advantage of by using these creatures for different sorts of labor. And I think if we can answer that sort of question, we can maybe strike at the heart of Wolf's sense of being, whether it's treated as an object or a subject, but it is a being at the end of the day. Well, here, I'm not sure that I agree with the premise of your question. And I'm going to have two responses to that. One is that when we encounter robots in wolf stories, so far, up to this point, the story has always been about how much of a person that robot is. We saw that with Westing and Slaves of Silver. We've seen this with IBEM, etc. And we will see this again, we know. But here, this story seems to take the opposite tack, that these are not robots, that these are machines that are being controlled by a person. They're not autonomous. They don't have a mind in them, and they certainly don't have a soul in them. And I think that that's the only way that this cautionary tale about don't have sex with them works, because otherwise we know that Wolf will say that that's part of the experience, that they're all people. They just have different, they're just made of different things, but they're all people, and so that would be fine. So I don't think that there's an equation between Antonio as a human, if we, if we read him as human, and Lily as a puppet here. I think that one of them is explicitly an ensouled creature, and one of them is definitively not, and that's actually really the point of the story. Wonderful. That, that kind of adds a lot to the reading. I guess what I'm trying to strike out here is that Wolf's beings all have a sense of moral obligation to one another. And it's Stromboli's treatment of Lily as his creation, who has had other men, we're told. And I don't think that's a lie. And I think that perhaps Stromboli became famous in part for using his puppets for these kinds of ends. That it's Stromboli who's kind of the inhuman one at the end of the day, who who is an old man who is able to reflect upon his past and the cost of his success is warning this new marionettist not to go down the same path and who tells him this in confidence through one of his personas because he's too ashamed to speak of it himself. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on, that, that, that Wolf's beings all recognize a moral obligation to one another in some way. And the monsters we meet in Wolf's story, be it human or animal or wild creature, ignore this moral obligation. I think that's absolutely right. That's clearly what's going on in this story. One thing more that I do want to say on this point, Brandon, is that I'm actually not convinced that Stromboli is a is a person, is a, is a human in this story. I think you, you, cle- you very clearly are. I think that I lean towards the idea that Antonio is actually the real puppet master. 
and that he's having a bit of fun in this story that this line about the Jaruri, the puppet master being in plain view is a bit of a joke because the narrator has come visited the puppet master has had a real conversation with the puppet master through this technological means that allows the voice to travel etc but has never actually seen who the puppet master is despite the fact that he thinks he is but the whole time he's been in plain sight i love your reading uh for me it's not a hill i want to die on because the only thing i care about is that the narrator is human and i think over the course of our discussion i've kind of come warmed to the idea that antonio is the puppet master on the forums though i'm happy to defend the fact that stromboli is the puppet master because i think it's this is a great feature of this story and such a fun conversation to have so i hope you'll all join us as we try to continue this conversation in the forums but for now glenn that's going to do it for this episode i'm brandon buddha and i'm glenn mcdormand you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the toy theater. We brought up a bunch of things in this episode that we'd love to hear your thoughts on. So please bring that to us so we can continue the conversation of this great fan favorite. And I'll say that I wasn't prepared to die on the hill of Antonio as the puppet master. And in fact, if Brandon, if you had come in here and said that you thought Antonio was the puppet master, I probably would have said, no, it's Stromboli. But I, I do hope people will come argue with us about that. We can we can take on those personas. But looking ahead, Brandon, the, the next episode we're recording is going to be our February Patreon episode. What are we reading for that? Yeah, we're going to be covering a wonderful story by another massively underread science fiction and fantasy writer named John Crowley. We're covering a story of his called Snow, uh, which can be found in our perennial favorite, the big book of science fiction, edited by Jeff and Ann Vandermeer. This story was a thing of beauty. So I really hope, you know, if you can find a dollar to listen to us that month, that would just, I think you'd be enriched by this story as I was reading it. Yeah, I'm excited about this. Coincidentally, before you picked this one, Brandon, I just read one of Crowley's very early novels, The Deep. And uh, so I'm excited to see what he's going to do in this short story. Next time here on the main podcast, we'll be covering the story Alien Stones, which you can find in the collection The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.